Show and our latest foray into your listener questions. Today we're looking at Giorena's defensive capabilities, the Eagle Seagull Derby, and we get granular on XG, which is just as fun as it sounds. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who makes fun of John Mayer but likes Riff Raff, Taylor Rockwell. I am outing your musical taste at the top of the show. Yeah, and I stand by it. I don't need John Mayer in my life. I do need Riff Raff from time to time. The man makes good workout music. He makes good running music. If you're doing manual labor and you feel yourself uh, sort of draining, Riff Raff will get you back in gear. I guarantee you that. I don't endorse his fashion choices, his style choices. I don't plan to tattoo BET or Tweety Bird onto my body or get grills or anything like that. But uh, maybe the pink braids. Maybe I'll get some pink braids at some point in my life. I, I have one Riff Raff song on my running gym playlist, Taylor, and it's got this hilarious sort of spoken word bit at the beginning where he goes, but he's like, put the windows down, shades down, bro. It's oh, oh, it's, I know that like, song. That song rules. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> It's amusing. But um, I, would, I would rather buy tickets to John Mayer if I were me, which I am me. Here's the definitive thing about Riff Raff and, and other artists of his kind or style is that I wouldn't say I know the names of his songs, but I definitely, as soon as you play them, know at least some of the words to them. Uh, I, I think Carlos Slim, Peach Panther, Pink Panther, Vanilla Gorilla, Butterscotch Babe Ruth, those I can get for you. But outside of that, uh, I, I start to struggle. Oh, let's move on. Joining us, <laughs> are <you> sure? <laughs> I mean, we can we can go on riff raff a little longer if you like. Dolce and Gabon. I only rock Dolce and Gabon. That's a solid one. I'll stop now. <laughs> let's stop now. Uh, let's introduce a man who's getting ready to talk about XG. He's flipping from six to midnight as we speak. Joe Lowry. Hello. Am I on the wrong show? What what Zencaster link did I just join? <laughs> I'm not sure that I want to be here anymore. No. I, uh, it's on brand. It's on brand and off brand all at the same time for us. So I'm here mm-hmm. for it, Ryan. I like it. Well, I, I'm excited to talk about it. We, we, are, we have a big question about XG coming up, as I've previewed. And uh, it's actually very interesting what we have found out about that. Uh, I'm, I'm being sincere when we say that. And joining us, Joe, to discuss that and much more, a man celebrating a famous win for his miserable little country, Graham <laughs> Rutherford. Congratulations. Wow. Still wearing your Scotland shirt today. A big win for Scotland over Spain uh, yesterday evening as we record. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. I mean, as Rodri cried afterwards, we were we were rubbish. Just a rubbish performance by Scotland. Um, not very good at all. Not very memorable. I am shocked at the mention of John Mayer and Riff Raff because uh, I wasn't aware there are other songs in the world. I thought it was just a Super John McGinn song. I thought that was the only song in the whole world at this moment in time. Well, there's the... Uh, yeah, that's the one, right? Is there any other Scottish <laughs> ones you sing? Uh, we sing about how... Flower of Scotland, yeah, sending yeah. Proud Edward's army homewards. And um, Scott McTominay now has a song because all of a sudden he has turned into Prime Zinedine Zidane and is going to win the Ballon d'Or four goals in two games. So, yeah, there's a few songs now that we sing. Very nice. Well, and that, that, that was a, a wonderful experience for you, Graham, which you've documented on the Patreon, of course, with a very good video uh, from your time at Hampden Park. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want to check it out. Guys, I realise... Um, the three teams that we uh, follow as nationals on this podcast all won all of their games in this window. That's kind of cool, right? 
Aww. Look at us, I think guys. And somebody, going places. Somebody in the Discord also pointed out a, a pretty positive aggregate scoreline across all these games as well for our respective national teams. So uh, good work individually, good work as a unit, but especially good work to Scotland. Yeah. Uh, Gra- Graham, was that the biggest win of like your lifetime for Scotland? That you remember it's at least? There was, a, there was a big nil-nil win against England. What was that? A year or so ago. That yeah, was... but we, well, we don't count games. Don't against let him make it smaller... England. Don't let him make don't... it about England, Graham. Don't let him make it about England. We don't count games against pot two teams. You know, we're only caring about <laughs> about results against pot one teams like Spain, <laughs> and you know, we beat them. So, uh, but yes, I think it is certainly one of the biggest results that I have been a Scotland fan for. I mean, we've beaten France, we've beaten the Netherlands in the past. So the thing about last night's game was. And this kind of speaks to what Rodri said about it being a rubbish performance. He's obviously talking about how much of the ball that Spain had, but where were your chances, Rodri? Like they hit the bar once and beyond that, it didn't feel like they were going to score. Scotland defended well, created chances and threw in a little bit of poop housery. And I enjoyed every single minute of it. Maybe Spain should try some of that stuff, particularly the creating chances bit, because I've heard that that is important for winning football matches. (laughs) <laughs> good stuff uh, I do recommend listening you check out Graham's video my favourite part is when you're walking along outside the stadium and an excited gentleman could try to join in on a video and you said something like what's the score going to be and he went oh 7-0 and quick as a flash Graham goes yeah to Spain probably uh, which didn't come to pass so uh, that was good I have a question about that. You all, I, I think, are much better. Graham, in particular, are better about doing those sort of walk and talks and not being self-aware. I, I promise I'm not trying to throw shade, but actually asking this question. I think as soon as I start to film myself in public, I'm aware that I'm filming myself in public, mm. and I feel like sort of a jerk. Are you all able to just like not think about that, or is it because you're doing something for the Patreon, you're actually creating content that people will consume, that it makes a difference? How do you uh, combat that? I do sometimes feel like a little bit of a jerk YouTuber at times, particularly when I'm in a crowd of crowd of people. But it helps if you have a low opinion of yourself to begin with. To begin with, which I uh, I do, so I don't really care what people think. I go. just Taylor, like, I just trust yeah. that the crowd of uh, Gen Z TikTokers and YouTubers have paved the way for people like us. That's all it is. So you know what? In that moment, if they can go out there in public and do do whatever it is that they're doing, then I can record a Patreon video. That's my perspective. That makes yeah. sense. I think I would be just nervous around Hampton Park that they would look at me as a fraud because of my accent to begin with and because I'd probably call it soccer at some point and then filming myself. That might put it over the top. Yeah. Uh, when I The occasions I've done it, Taylor, I find it tremendously embarrassing as well, I must admit. <laughs> Walking down the street, if I'm, if I'm doing like going to or from the stadium, I'll make sure there's not someone right in front of me or right behind me so they don't have to listen in earshot to my nonsense. So. Uh, my wife can always tell mm. when I'm around. We're people not so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. No, we're not. Oh, oh, a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got you Ryan wasn't ready for that burn. <laughs> Ryan was oh, not ready for that. Oh god, both barrels today. I'm loving it. Uh, let's get to our listener questions, shall we? Um, Sunny Johnson has been in touch. I appreciate your psychological analysis of Giorena. Do you believe, however, that he needs to learn how to play defense to be a true impact player for club? or country taylor you look Mm -hmm. like you want to answer this one first big man any question from sade i will answer Uh, i cannot tell if the first part of that was sarcasm or not i want to start there i can't tell if the i appreciate your psychological analysis thing was real um i also can't say that i had many strong opinions on reina's defensive work before this question which is why i really enjoyed it i watched a bunch of footage from his recent games i have concerns i will add 
I'm not sure like the defensive side of Gio Reyna's game is going to be the most important thing, the thing that defines him, even like like one of his top 10 best attributes in terms of what clubs will be looking for. I also think I might be biased against him. I would just want to like own that up front. I don't know if it's the World Cup stuff. I don't know if it's the kind of body language stuff. But either way, I find him to be a frequently frustrating person or player when it comes to his body language. And I think that informs my understanding of his defensive work because so much of what I saw from him is basically that he goes into 1v1s in a very particular way. He sort of runs at the person on the ball and will maybe go in for the tackle, but mostly he's kind of going at them applying pressure. And if he is bypassed, if he doesn't win that challenge, he's kind of done. He kind of turns and walks back. Maybe he'll jog back. But there's not that intensity that I would maybe expect of a Dortmund player. It did make me wonder if this is part of the reason why we haven't seen him play for Dortmund so much this season. I don't think that defensive effort is there. And even in the uh, El Salvador game, I saw a couple different times when he is he's pretty clear on who he's supposed to be marking and is just sort of jogging backwards until he realizes like, oh, my guy's got the ball. I need to close him down. And even when he does, he gets cut twice and then starts walking again. And I think there are some limitations to his game. Again, I don't think that is meant to be the strongest point, but I do wonder if pressing teams, more sort of uh, systematic teams when it comes to how they defend are going to look at those shortcomings and have some questions about him. Hmm. Joe, your thoughts on this one? Is it How important is the defensive side of his game? I think that's the key part of this question, Ryan, and I'm glad you asked. I, I don't think I can accurately answer that question, but I do think we can maybe get a little bit closer to thinking about the trade-offs that you make in soccer, right, with when you when you select different players. Anytime you, you want to put a player on the field, you accept a trade-off, right? You get the thing that they're good at or the thing that, that they're supposed to be good at, and you miss out on the stuff that they don't do very well. We can think about this with... Tyler Adams in a completely like reverse Gio Reyna way, where Adams is very, very good at defending, covers a bunch of ground. You know exactly what you're going to get from him in terms of effort and energy and disruptive ability. But what you don't get is, is any sort of attacking thrust. Like Adams is a connector in midfield and, and not a great one at that. In my mind, he can play the ball forward, but he's not very good under pressure. And so with the defensive value that he adds, you're also risking some offensive challenges there. So that's one side of this. And you think about for Gio Reyna, we haven't seen Gio Reyna's attacking ability develop to the extent that Adam's defensive ability has developed. So you don't really get as much of the benefit with a player like Gio Reyna yet. You get it in flashes. You get it in spurts. You don't get it consistently for 90 minutes because he's either not fit or just not consistent enough as a young player. But the trade-off with Reyna is you, you, you're expecting to get some attacking quality and you're sacrificing some defensive work. Taylor, I think you're absolutely right. Like, Giorena is not a very good defender. He doesn't always move around the field with a ton of urgency. He's kind of floppy in how he moves, like one of those car yeah. wash things that are, that are outside yeah. every single car wash in the, the United States. The wacky, waving, inflatable yeah. f- arm-waving two men? Yeah. Yes, those. Yep, yeah, what you said. Um, like, he, he kind <laughs> of runs cool. like one of those players when he's not engaged. And so you do lose something. Like, if the U.S. want to integrate Giorena into the lineup, particularly as a central midfielder, you're essentially losing like the mobility of Adams or Musa or McKinney yeah. and adding Giorena in, which is a net loss defensively. Like it, there's no other way around it. You have to cover for him somewhere. But I guess where I fall on this is I'm optimistic enough about what Giorena brings in the attacking side that I know this is a wild comparison. Actually, I don't even need to make the messy comparison. Just think oh, about boy. any elite attacking player in the world. Like any anybody that's bringing that kind of value, and Giorena's not there yet, but any attacking player in the like top – three percentile in in the world is not bringing you above average defensive work. Like those players are so, so rare. So if the U S think Gio can be good enough to change games for them, 
then I think he's worth trying to accommodate. And I think he's absolutely already a true impact player for the U.S., which is really what, what Sade was asking about. Yeah, I, I think it's a key distinction there. First of all, I feel like I went after uh, Gio Reyna in my response, so Joe took shots at Tyler Adams just to sort of balance the scales a little bit. I see what you did there, Joe. Uh, I think that's probably a fair point when it comes to the United States. I think you can, especially at uh, international level, sort of uh, balance your team such that you don't have to have everybody defending 100%. More so for me is the concern at club level, where I think about players like Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane uh, playing for Liverpool and then Mane even with Bayern right up until he gets into fights with Nagelsmann, both of them put in that defensive work, will do that running to at the very least sort of harass and frustrate and uh, inhibit counterattacking opportunities or just genuine attacking opportunities. And I think you're right, Joe, that it's it's a lot of the way he runs, the sort of casualness that he seems to run on the defensive side. That's where I, I sort of see problems arising potentially if that Mm. isn't improved. I mean, maybe he goes to clubs where that's not as needed or there isn't this idea that the whole team is pressing and working really hard off the ball. But any team that is, I think that is a a major red flag if you're considering signing him, at least right now. You're right, he's very young. That could very much change. I just was surprised by, if not the lack of effort, then the lack Mm. of intensity on the defensive side in a number of different games. Yeah, it's not ideal and and nothing... I hope I didn't convey that it is ideal in, in my opening comments because I, I would love you said I love it, to is what you I, said. I love that's that Giorgina doesn't yeah. try defensively. Yeah, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> I, I do think that that immediately makes him if you provide more defensive effort, like that immediately makes you a more valuable player. Mm-hmm. I I don't sure. actually know what I think about the question I'm about to ask, but Grim, maybe <clears throat> excuse me, maybe I'll toss this to you. Do you think I'm thinking about a club like Manchester City, right? Do you think that Bernardo Silva and Jack Grealish and Kevin De Bruyne? Do those guys provide, like, elite defensive effort? Do they provide significantly more than Gio Reyna? I'm open to the answer yeah. being yes. But, okay, do you, so you think that they're, like, they're much more active defensively in, in the kind of movements that they provide without the ball? If Gio Reyna is the, is the benchmark we're using here, yes, I think okay. Bernardo Silva, even Jack Grealish, and actually he's down in my notes as a player who has added defensive work rate and work ethic to his game after a, a move to another club. So at Aston Villa, obviously, he was their talismanic difference maker. The team was basically built around him. He didn't need to be that player. He moves to Manchester City where everyone is expected to contribute on the defensive side of the ball. Even Erling Haaland this season, there's been some discussion. I know we're talking about players in very different positions here, sure. but talking about the principle of, of um, you know defensive work and, and contributing on the defensive side of the ball. Even, even Erling Haaland has had discuss, discussion around him this season on his work rate. So Jack Grealish is one of the players I look at and he should offer some encouragement to Gio Reyna that in the right circumstances, with the right coach, at the right club, I still think he can add that to his game. Let's look at another American at a lower level, but Malik Tillman. At the start of the season for Rangers, it was the one biggest thing. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on the show. Whenever Rangers faced a team that was ball dominant, Malik Tillman went completely missing. His work rate was a real problem. He got dropped from the team essentially for a while because of it. And now Michael Beale's come into Rangers. He's a manager who seemingly has been able to instill those things in Malik Tillman much better than Giovanni Van Bronckhorst. And all of a sudden in European games and in old farm derbies, Malik Tillman is, is providing that work rate on the defensive side of the ball. So I agree with everything that's been said about Gio Reyna. My concern with Gio Reyna right now is if he's going to be in that central unit. I can't really think of a player in that position in world football that doesn't provide something on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, Jude Bellingham is a comparison you would make to 
a player who drives the ball forward in the way that Reyna might do for the US in the future. And Jude Bellingham provides plenty on the defensive side of the ball. So if he's moving into central position, that is a concern for the US and it's an area of his game that he would really need to work at. Good stuff. All right. Thank you very much, Sadi Johnson, for that question. I, I hope it's I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I'll take Sadi over Riff Raff any day, though. Right, Taylor? Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sade. Sade is the is the artist you're going for. There Who knows go. if it's Sade, Sade, Sade. Could be anybody. Either way, I love this question uh, because it made me think things I had not previously thought. There we go. That's what it's all about, T-Rock. Let's get another question in from Derek, who says, I noticed in one of Graham's Patreon videos that he moves around quite a bit during matches. When watching as a fan, where do you prefer to sit in a stadium? Graham, before we get to this question, can I ask you yes. something I also observe from your videos? And that is that you go to games alone quite a lot. Mm. Now, I am I am a stand for going to the movies, going to the cinema on your own, because I don't believe it's a social activity. You go and watch a movie. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to normalize that. I do it all the time. Or I have done it all the time in the past. However, with soccer games, I can't recall ever going to one on my own. So what's that experience like? And do you, do you tend to meet up with people while you're there? Yeah. How does it work? So I, I did go to the Scotland game last night on my own and not to get the small violin out, but that was essentially because I couldn't find anyone to go with. Um, so I'd rather go to the game on my own rather than not go to the game. With Albion games, it's a bit different. I do go on my own, but I meet up with maybe six or seven other people there that I have been watching Sterling Albion games with for, for years. Right. So I'm certainly not alone when I'm watching the game. I'm talking to them while the, the game is happening. And last night, I did kind of miss that in the first half where... I was kind of having frustrations with uh, Aaron Hickey giving the ball away a couple of times and I ended up actually making pals with the people behind me, which you saw in the <laughs> Patreon video when the second goal yep. went in. So Unreal. second half, I started kind of uh, muttering to them some things. But <laughs> yes, I, I, last night I went on my own, but uh, generally I will be watching the game with, with people that I know. Okay, fair enough. And Graham, when you do go to the game, where is your preferred vantage point? Yeah, so obviously sometimes you, you can't move around. Going back to Derek's question about how I move around quite a bit during matches, obviously sometimes you can't move around, like last night at Hamden when you buy your ticket and that is your seat, you stay put. Um, but one of the best things about lower league football is how a lot of the stadiums allow you to move around. You can basically just walk around the entire stadium. Um, I don't know, Ryan, I think League 2 might be a little bit a, a level above that, but maybe if you go down to like National League, I think some of those stadiums will be similar. So if your yeah. team is shooting towards a certain goal, you will go and stand behind that goal for that half and then you go to the other end for the for the second half. I do enjoy that about lower league football. Um, but if I have to pick a place to sit and stay there, it was pretty much exactly where I was at Hamden last night, which was at one of the corner flags. I guess my theory is that you still get a decent view of the match itself being somewhat along the touchline. Um, but then if a goal scored, you've got a 50% chance of being close to it. And then also, crucially, players celebrate goals in corners of pitches. Oh. So there's always there's always good fun there if, the, if there's a goal score and they're celebrating right in front of you. That's So I tend to go... Basically, if you've seen my, my Patreon video from last night, that would be my optimum position. Wow. I, I did not see that answer coming. Taylor, I thought that the corner position would be the least favorable it's, it's interesting for me taylor because obviously the most atmosphere generally at stadiums is for, with the ultras or the fans behind the goal but maybe not perceived as the best vantage point for taking in the game yeah especially if you're sitting directly behind the goal uh you are then going to be in that supporter section it is going to be a lot about creating the atmosphere creating the vibe i think sometimes less so what is 
fully happening on the pitch, the tactics, the instructions, the adjustments, and more so the big events, you're going to get those in that supporter section. I think sitting just to the side of the supporter section, that's what we did for the Sporting Kansas City game. I think that's a kind of perfect blend of you can see the tactics, you can see how the play is developing, but you are near the atmosphere. When, when there's a goal scored, you get the smoke going off, and it does give you that sort of combination. But to be honest, my answer was up and in the corners. So there you go. Oh. Graham and I, I think, are are similarly aligned on this one because I think it gives you the sort of best of both worlds right behind the goal, but up. You can see just straight down the pitch so you can see how play is developing, how the tactics are changing. In the corner, I think you can still do that, but you can get a sense, a better sense of the offside line, uh, how high those lines are pushing on either side. Uh, and then, yeah, you get the celebrations too. Uh, so I, I think that's where I tend to prefer to sit. Also because midfield seats for U.S. sporting events are, you know, $7,000 or yeah, whatever. So they get a true. little bit a little bit too pricey at the same did, time. Did I see the all-star tickets? Yes. are like $300. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Which That's is, all I have to say. Which I would say is is ridiculous in a number of ways. It's also the problem of hosting an all-star game at Audi Field, which does not have a big capacity. It's a it's a small stadium, and it's small even in the way that it's kind of on the ground. The main concourse is on the ground. You walk in from the ground floor. You stay on that level. You walk around it. You go up into your seats for the most part. But, like, I, I don't think there's much space there, whereas, like... Uh, the Atlanta All-Star Game, you can sell that thing out and you get, what, like 60,000, 70,000 people in there? So I think it is it is a strange place to do it. I think the limitations of the venue make it hard to get uh, decently priced seats. All right, Joe, we've had two votes for basically in the corner, which by my count was the worst of both worlds because you can't quite see the offsides and you're not behind jo- the goal. What do you, what do you jo- think, Joe? Joe wants to be in a blimp above the stadium <laughs> yeah. so he can see all the... I want to be in my stuff. floating stadium above the actual go. on the ground stadium to lure everyone up to my floating stadium. Um, sorry, Ryan, did you just say you can't see the offside line in the corner? Which is true. Is yeah. that something you care about seeing when you're in person? Yes. Yes. Ryan needs you got to check the AR. <laughs> is, that, is that what you're doing? <laughs> well, I, I, just, I think, well, if you want to get to my answer, I always think sitting on the halfway line is the very best. Like my family's tickets for Wimbledon are on the halfway line. They always were back at Selhurst Park back in the day and Plough Lane back in the day before that. I don't mind sitting behind the goal because I think you get the best. You tend to get the best atmosphere and the most sure. banter, if you want to use that kind of phrase. But in so many stadiums, Joe, I think the view behind the goal isn't great. Case in point, the Stadio Olimpico. I all, I've, 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 I've been many, many, many times and sat in the Corva Nord or the Corva Sud um, with behind the goals, and I've done it. I've, I've sat in that stadium on the halfway line where I prefer. Yeah, and. The view's better, but the action is completely behind the goals. When you go behind the goals in in these stadiums at the Olympico, that's where the fans are smoking and shouting and drinking and fighting, and you know there's some soccer going on as well. So that it basically, <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a little torn, but I would always say go on the halfway line and going on. This is a new perspective for me, viewing from from the corner and from the rafters in the corner. But, I I but the thing is, sorry to jump in, Joe, but I, no, I right. don't think Taylor and I are, are disputing that the best view of the match as it is unfolding on the pitch is the halfway line. I, don't, mm. I think that is indisputable. Mm-hmm. But as a, as a match-going fan for the best experience where you're trying to mix having a good view of the match and also experiencing the atmosphere, that is what leads me to the corners where you, you, you get, as Taylor said, the best of both worlds. Okay, yeah. that's fair. It, it also maybe for me is a little bit like the Brian Regan joke about how when you're the youngest kid, you get the worst seat in the car. So he just started calling the worst seat because then it made him feel like he had some control over it, like backseat in the middle on the hump. Uh, and I feel like for me, some of the 
MLS press boxes or the bigger like NFL press boxes start around midfield and then wrap around. And the the high profile name journalists, they all get to sit around midfield. But maybe the less reputable you are, the further away from midfield you are, the closer to the corner. And that's where this guy sits. So <laughs> I think maybe it's also just I've learned to accept that sitting in the corner is where I will be. So I it's want where the I want to be. Press box. Exactly. I want it. I call it. It's mine. <laughs> I'll, quickly, I'll quickly toss my answer in because it's nothing. I, I don't fully know. Like I haven't been to as many soccer games as a fan as I would like to. So I don't have a fully formed opinion. But I think I either want to be high enough, not in the press box, but high enough, like back a few rows to be able to see what's going on, maybe shaded towards one side or the other of the middle. Like I'd still rather be closer towards the middle because then I can see everything, but I want to be high enough then that I actually can see everything or I want to be really close. Like I want to be down as in, in whatever the lowest row is to get the most like surreal experience of being this close to the field to actually see how absurd the stuff that these these players do is. So I think I, I don't really want to be medium. I either want to be like up, up into the action, or I want to be a little bit further out and sort of shaded to one side or the other so I can see more of what's going on. Hmm. A man of extremes. I like it, Joe. Yes. Oh, there are some, uh, let's, maybe we can say it depends on the stadium as well, because some stadiums yeah. I've sat in the front row and where it's recessed a little bit, the camber of the field means you can't quite see the other side of the field when the ball's on the ground, for example. Yeah. And go, going back to the Olympico as well, um, because it's a circular stadium with a track, like behind the goal, the opposite goal feels like it's in a different zip code. And when you're in a corner, that's kind of exacerbated as well. Yeah, it totally does depend on the stadium because when I have gone to um, Orlando matches, I've not actually been lucky enough to to stand in the wall behind the goal, but I've always thought next time I come, that's that's where mm-hmm. I want to be. Whereas with Hamden and Olympico, the Stadio Olympico, which are very similar stadiums in terms of the bowl um, structure, I av- I avoid behind the goals at all costs. Speaking of that, uh, I want to I want to pause for a moment. I will happily throw shade at Orlando as a city. I will not throw shade at Orlando City nor Orlando uh, fans. I've seen some posts about how there was a lack of attendance, a lack of atmosphere uh, for the USA's game against El Salvador. I'm not going to deny that or dispute that. I will say that like we talked on this show about how these weren't the most exciting games for any number of different reasons. But the World Cup qualifier in Orlando versus Panama that the U.S. just blanked Panama or beat them pretty handily. That atmosphere was rowdy. It was very loud. It was very intense. Everybody was up for it. That stadium is excellent when everybody is up for it. When it's all-star game and people aren't quite as enthusiastic, maybe it's a, it's a quieter stadium. But I, I still think Orlando City uh, has great atmosphere. And that wall, you're right, Graham, is, is pretty epic. Good stuff. Um, we won't hear any slander against Orlando as a city, by the way, Taylor. The host of uh, MLS is back, of course. Uh, one of our <laughs> yes, yes. We've seen in the concrete city. Years. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, Derek, thank you very much for that question. Let's take a quick break when we come back. Plenty more, actually. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listen to Questions. Zachary Bates has been in touch. Can someone please explain why Crystal Palace and Brighton are rivals? What other non-geographical soccer rivalries exist? So, Taylor, this is the Eagle-Seagull mm-hmm. derby, which you have to say slowly, uh, and you can't say quickly three times. Bird derby. Derby to birds. Yeah. Uh, the M23. It wasn't always. <laughs> hey. uh, it's the highway running between these two teams, which are not geographically close, as Zachary notes. And well, there are a few reasons well. for this rivalry, and one of them involves poop. Yes, yes, it does. does. Well said. The stage is set. I would add, what are they, like 41 kilometers apart? Yeah, and... An American term, yeah. this is a Darby. <laughs> that's, that's it. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty close. But yes, uh, for for England, uh, not as close. And then I did love, I don't know how apocryphal this is, but I did love that Brighton were originally the Dolphins and then changed yes, so to the I. Seagulls with a lot of speculation that it was to annoy Crystal Palace, who had the Eagles <laughs> at the time. Uh, but for my research, uh, it dates back to 1976. Uh, Brighton managed by Alan Mullery, uh, Palace by Terry Venables. Uh, both had been appointed in June 1976. Both had previously played together at Tottenham. And it seems like this is where some of the rivalry begins, that Mullery is made captain, Venables made vice captain, and there's a friendly competitiveness that maybe loses some of the friendliness as time goes on. Uh, these two playing in the third division at the time, played each other five times that season. First one is a one-to-one draw. Uh, they draw against each other in the first round of the FA Cup. First two matches are draws, uh, so we go to a third replay at Wembley, uh, and there is a lot of uh, questionable officiating in this one. Palace goes ahead 1-0, Brighton have a goal unfairly disallowed, according to both Brighton and I think some Palace supporters as well. Brighton then awarded a penalty near the end of the game. Uh, Brian Horton takes it and scores it. Referee whistles for infringement. Penalty is retaken and missed, and it, the point is consistently made that the only players who were in the box were Palace players, so it should not have been retaken. Uh, Mullery, uh, the manager of Brighton, very angry, confronts the official as he's walking off, has 
various objects thrown at him, including a cup of hot coffee. He then, I think, throws change on the ground and says, that's all your club is worth. Uh, And I think the rivalry is born. It gets more and more intense over time, including, as Ryan mentioned, in the 2012-2013 championship uh, semifinal playoffs in the second leg, Palace arrived to find excrement smeared all over their locker room. I don't know if they ever caught who did it, uh, but Gus uh, Poye was very upset about it. He was then the Brighton manager, so angry that he, I think, like sent a very angry email to the board, and they sacked him for it. I'm very confused by how that all that played out, but it seems it like the it's, board. <laughs> exactly, it was them the whole time. Uh, but it does seem like one of these things where it's a small little thing that starts it, that little rivalry in the beginning, and then it builds and it builds and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is, I think, one and of then the there's poop best. On the walls. And then there's poop on the walls. That's how it goes. Starts small, gets bigger, doesn't get checked. Eventually, we all know, inevitably, poop on the wall. Uh, <laughs> I think this is one of the best stories of non-geographic rivalries because there's just so many little incidents there's other ones i've already gone plenty long talking about it but so many little incidents that keep it sort of simmering and brewing even when they don't play each other for like 13 years they're still actively rooting for the other to fail so it seems like this is a pretty great example of this uh credit to brighton and credit to crystal palace and and Taylor, that video that you sent in our Slack chat <laughs> last night, which I know this so isn't strange. ideal for a, so an, an, a, an audio medium, but uh, bizarre, bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it did a very good job of depicting the history of this mm-hmm. rivalry, but it was almost like watching one of those dreams you have when you're ill. Yes, um, it, so it was slow. like Wallace yeah. and Gromit narrated by a sort of sinister cockney. I just don't know if that's what I needed in my life. To be clear, listen, so this video didn't did. have poop in it, by the way, just so we're clear. It's, it was uh, a bit more innocent than that, in case that was where yes. Only a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it felt quite sinister, weirdly. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I did not know, Taylor, that Brighton were the Dolphins. That's a good little sta- uh, fact uh, factoid. Because did... the seaside, Ryan. Because well, the seaside. I'll tell you, I, am a, I, uh, I actually am a big aquarium nerd. And I know, having been to the Brighton Aquarium on the seafront many times, it was, I believe, the only UK aquarium to have dolphins in it back in the day. So well, we're pausing the show here to go way into the weeds on this one. Ryan, <laughs> what constitutes an aquarium nerd, I have to ask? Every new city we go to, I insist we go to the aquarium. Really? Yeah. Is that really a thing? That's really wow. a thing. And, and, and not, what, not even just since we've had kids. Like, the what are you looking for? Fish, just fish. Yeah. What? Like, what makes? What's? What? How you evaluate which ones are good aquariums, which ones are bad aquariums? <laughs> always, Tell us more. We're getting into it, but I've always kept fish. I've had like saltwater fish what? and marine fish and stuff like in my home. Uh, I, I really that explains like the fish tank in my room in Brooklyn. That makes the, a the lot Georgia more sense Aquarium now. is my mecca. It is incredible. You know that big aquarium that exploded in Belgium, uh, not Belgium, in Berlin yeah. a few weeks ago? That was your fault, Ryan, wasn't it? That, that was somehow your fault. You were there at the scene. I didn't do nothing. I would, never, I would never do anything to harm the uh, beautiful creatures of the sea. Graham. Of course not. Aren't fish not. just fish is the most Scottish take I think I've ever heard <laughs> on aquariums, I have to say. Uh, similar to George Costanza constantly calling whales fish. Uh, that, that feels like some some great Graham Ruthven. Uh Ryan, have you been to the Baltimore Aquarium, which I feel like is the sort of gold standard on the East Coast, but I, I haven't been there since I was like five, so I don't know how good it actually is. Uh, I've not been there, but I was very jealous. My wife went there on a school field trip, uh, right. and she said it was an excellent aquarium. Uh, the, surely on the East Coast, the, the Georgia Aquarium has to be the, the... Do we call it East Coast? Kind of Fine. is, right? Fine. It's I don't Georgia know. is on the East Coast, yes. I mean, Atlanta's not technically coastal, but... Is it in Atlanta? It's in Atlanta. It's, it's right in downtown. Oh. Anytime you can have an aquarium in a landlocked city, you got to go for it. <laughs> it's got whale sharks. It's huge. What? Uh, it is whale sharks? Yeah. yeah. It's great. It's massive. It's 
Do they swim in? Do they swim in aquariums full of Coca Cola? Because that w- would really sort of bring the two cities together. It, it, it is next to Coca Cola World, uh, so that that, oh that is quite possible. We've talked okay. long enough about fish, though. Anyone have any extra non-geographical soccer rivalries to bring up here? I mean. Mill leads because their fans don't like each other very much is one that springs to mind. Anything else, uh, Graham? Is, is that rivalry, not not to put too fine a point on it, but is that rivalry just because both of their fans are uh, traditionally generalizing here of a certain type, sort of hooligany, traditionally, yep. going down it. the years? Is That's that the reason. only reason? That's right, it. okay, cool. Yep. Cool, yep. cool. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think I found a couple more. I think there are historical ones or historical strength rivalries. So Liverpool, Manchester United, obviously not the same city, but both of them have had so much success historically that they're the two of the biggest clubs in England. They're going to be rivals. Barcelona and Real Madrid, the same. And then on top of that is the historical connections uh, of the Franco regime and everything involved there. I'll leave it at that. Uh, so I think you'll get some of that. The other like, couple that I thought were pretty interesting uh, St. Pauli, Hansa Rostock is not one that I was as familiar with until researching this one. St. Pauli, very leftist, very progressive, anti-racist, pro-LGBTQ+, anti-fascist. Hansa Rostock, located in the east, so more right-wing, more conservative a bit. There were fights in the stands in 1992 when these two played each other uh, over like riots and immigration issues, and they are now one of the most heavily policed matches in the world. I think it's one police officer for every 20 supporters when these two play each other. Uh, Another sort of historical rivalry that also touches on competitive rivalry would be Napoli versus Inter Milan. Uh, That dates back to the 80s when both clubs are vying for supremacy in the league. But Milan, northern, very cosmopolitan. The north of Italy is where the wealth has uh, historically been, whereas uh, Naples scene is poorer. I talked about the Soprano scene. It's an excellent scene with Furio explaining why he hates the North, but it really does sort of give you a, a an abbreviated history of Italy pretty quickly. So I think these that would be another one that isn't geographic, but is sort of related to geography. Uh, plenty of national team ones as well. And then I would throw in the Richmond Kickers having a rivalry with the Charleston Battery for who is the oldest continually operating team in the United States, amongst other things. That's a good one. And the the Henny Derby of Richmond versus Ford Madison, uh, two of the only, uh, I think, clubs in USL to have black supporters groups. Uh, the two heads of those groups made a bet over which team would win, with the loser having to buy the winner a bottle of Hennessy, and it has continued since then. So uh, those little rivalries as well, those sort of the little ones that pop up and then kind of grow from there, I also really enjoy. I, I like that Richmond and Charleston have a rivalry based on continuous operation. It's so, like, it's so nerdy. They- it's so nerdy. Yeah, they're rolling up their sleeves going, I've consulted this textbook and it oh. says this. Oh, it, it's it's to like the day. Like I think Charlotte played on a Saturday, but Richmond maybe played on a Friday. And so there's 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 much debate as to who did what. It does seem like most people will say that Charleston is the longest continually operating one. But then I think there's, there's one indoor team that's been around since like the 70s. So I don't really know. It doesn't really matter. All I know is it did inform my dislike of Charleston from a young age. Charleston has a lovely aquarium, by the way. Small, but uh, albino alligators in there. Very good. Very good uh, one to visit. Uh, Thank you, Zachary. Um, Thank you to myself for revealing my Troy McClure-style enjoyment of ocean animals. I did not know this, and now I'm excited (laughs) to learn more. (laughs) Oh, spin-off podcast. Can we agree, wherever we go next, the four of us, whenever we're together, we're going to an aquarium, and Ryan is going to tell us his favorite things? Absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I, I practically insist. Uh, thank you, Zachary, for that question. Todd Metcalf has one here. Is XG the same from league to league? Well, I'll is see you later. Shot, 
<laughs> Joe Stick yeah, your job. <laughs> is a shot from the top of the arc the same in the Premier League as it is in other leagues? And what constitutes a shot? Are blocked shots considered for XG? What about crosses that actually go on target? And Todd expands at the Liverpool at a recent Liverpool Chelsea game, there were shots from outside the box near the arc that were collected near the touchline. They didn't even make it out for a throw-in. Do those count as well? Uh, Todd says he's just curious what actually is considered a shot. Joseph. Okay, so thinking through, there's a lot of different questions here. I'm going to start with the first one, which I think is the hardest one and, and was the one that took me the most time to research and to learn more about, which is, is XG the same league to league? Or I think maybe a better way to phrase this, and you guys feel free to jump in anytime or, or to jump in if something doesn't make sense, because I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of this stuff. So is XG, is, is a shot's XG value from the top of the box in the exact same spot the same in the Premier League as it is in the Bundesliga, as it is in La Liga, as it is in MLS, as it is, you get the idea, right? So that's, I think that's what's being asked here by Todd in that first question. So is that shot from the same spot in the same context worth the same from one league to the next? Basically, I didn't know the answer to this question. So I reached out to Kieran Doyle, who is a university soccer coach in Canada and does a bunch of really good work for American soccer analysis on the MLS side and on the NWSL side. Kieran's super smart and knows a lot of stuff. So this was his answer to, to basically me asking him this question. He said, good XG models, so the data models that decide what the XG values of these shots are, will include the league as a feature. And the model can sort of choose whether the league matters or not. So for a tap-in that's one inch away from the goal, you know, it might not matter what league you're in because that shot goes in like 99% of the time, regardless of where you are. But for a shot at the top of the box, maybe the model will decide that the league does matter. So I, I sort of followed up with him because my my immediate thought was, well, basically, you know, how does the model decide? And it, isn't it just as simple as if a Premier League player takes a shot from outside the box, it's going to be a low-quality chance, but it's probably going to be slightly higher than if an MLS player does it because, generally speaking, Premier League players are better. So that that's where my, my mind went first. It's probably more likely that Ruben Neves is going to hit that ball into the back of the net than it is for uh, Noel Buck, 17-year-old American central midfielder for the Revs, right? But basically, that's not why. So I, that's what I asked Kieran. He's like, that's not really how it works. So he said, and this is the end of my, my spiel. This, I think we're almost to the bottom of this. He said, basically, when the model sees that, a, that historically a certain kind of shot with the same characteristics, so maybe it is that shot from the top of the box, like, you know, 18 yards out, right after a counterattack. Like, let's add in all that context. The model can see that those kinds of shots, if they go in more often in the Premier League or in some specific league than they do in other leagues on average, then the model could flag that shot and say, like, actually, this shot that's usually worth, like, 0.01 XG is worth 0.02 because in this league, in this context, based off of what the model knows from past shots, it actually does go in more often. So it's not necessarily like a player quality thing which is where my mind went first. It's more so the model just zeroing in on a specific subset of data in a specific area and deciding whether or not that is a relevant factor. How the machine learning stuff goes and how the models are actually built, I, I can't speak to, but I, I think that answers at least the first bit of Todd's question. Okay. So, yeah, that, that kind of aligns with the research I found. I, I do a bit of work with sports betting, and also in, in pricing for sports betting, they have to consider stuff like this. And this is a quote from 
uh, a company called Tenstar who do pricing for betting operators. And they say different XG models look at different levels of shot granularity. Simpler models look at whether the shot originated inside or outside the box, whereas more complex models look in greater detail at the angle of the shot or the method or the attempt, like if it's a header right. or a shot, in assigning the XG value. Other models look at the passage of attacking play that preceded the shot, the position of the goalkeeper, so on and so forth. So basically, yeah, confirming there that there are lots of different models, different nerds taking different right. things into yeah. different accounts. Right, and, and one more thing. Sorry, Taylor. I think in this case, from what I found... The where the shot is being taken from, sort of the, the Ryan, you mentioned the type of attack that precedes it, right? I think that's something you said, and, and I kind of mentioned with the counterattack yeah. versus you know other kinds of shots. You can factor that in. Some models, I think, are starting to factor in defender positioning as well, what body part the shot comes from. Essentially, the league, and from what I found, the, the league and, and what competition the shot's being taken in and what the past precedent is for shots of that type in that competition is like another feature of the model, just like shot location, uh, attack speed preceding the shot, you know, angle, all that kind of stuff. It's like another factor that the model then decides whether to use or not, if it's relevant and if it would have a meaningful impact. All right. So, so is XG like like coffee or wine for coffee or wine snobs, where broadly speaking, you might like people like it, but then there are certain leagues that do it better, or like will you find an XG snob whose MLS's calculations are off, they don't take into account angle the way they should? Like, will you get that level of nuance, do you think? Oh, darling, well, be- you like Portuguese XG? No, 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 no. You <laughs> no, should no, have no, the no, French. No. Well, the models will be established by the collectors, right, Joe? Rather yeah, than like the, the leagues, leagues yeah. themselves. So so it'll be like Opta or Stats Bomb mm-hmm. or what are some other ones? Right. Do? So same question then. Head, but- Does that mean that you will get like... So, like, Joe, do you have a preferred, like, stats collector then or stats aggregator uh, or... Not not really. It's a good question. I just don't know enough. And, and there's only so many that are available publicly. But there is mm-hmm. an idea among data analysts that, like, the quality of information that you're getting, which is what this is about. XG is just another way to get information about soccer that hopefully helps you make better decisions. There is an idea among data analysts and people that are deeper into the space that some companies do a much better job of collecting accurate and useful information than others. So... Yeah, I guess I, I wouldn't say it's like coffee or wine so much because I think there is maybe more objectivity to it. Um, like, hmm. you know, there's you one person could appreciate a kind of coffee that another person doesn't like because of X, Y, Z reasons. I think the same could generally be true with something like this, but I think there's also like pretty clear yeah. levels to it of some companies gotcha. do a better job than others, just objectively speaking from people in the industry. Yeah. And and this isn't necessarily linked to XG, but through my kind of fantasy experience, I know that, for example, Opta records something like 800 match, uh, different match events, so like different data points per match, right. where someone like Genius Sports, they're about 250 marks. Sport Radar is another one, they're up at about 700. So there's a variance between the collectors of how much they're actually collecting in each match. Yeah, and Graham, that's the perfect, that's the perfect segue, I think, to the rest of Todd's question as far as like what counts as a shot, basically? Do blocked shots count for XG? Do cro- I mean, my answer to that is yeah, blocked shots do count for XG. And in general, it kind of just depends on who the poor person is that's writing down all the stuff from the game, right? Like if they decide the way that a lot of this data is gathered for basic things like passes and tackles and stuff like that is people watch the game and they code it, right? So it kind of depends on who the person is. If they judge that that cross was a shot or if it was a cross, like they're going to decide to note things down in whatever way makes sense to them in that moment. 
Graham, Graham, I've a lot of questions. You mentioned some of the companies like Opta and Sport Radio, and I, I guess people like IMG, and there's a bunch of others who will collect data yeah. for games. Why would some collect noticeably fewer data points than others? Does that that surely doesn't help them, right? Um, because some of these people are, some of these collectors are catering to different markets. So, for for example, Genius is all about speed for sports uh, for bets uh, betting market. So, Ryan, you'll be familiar with this. As soon as a, a team scores a goal, the market will be suspended. They enter what is called the danger zone on the back end, where they'll suspend all bets. They're primarily about speed, so that is they're essentially pouring their resources into speed over mm. you know quantity of things. Low latency. Whereas, mm. Yeah, exactly. And Opta, who are kind of the um, well, they used to be the gold standard certainly, but they they are more their their database would maybe be used by analysts more than betting. Um, they're more concerned with the amount that they're collecting. But there there is there are bloodlines. I mean, Sports Radar kind of straddle the two. They both provide uh, data for analysts and for sports betting. There we go. Uh, that's a very good question, Todd. So we learned that not all XGs were created equal, essentially, Joe. Yep. True. Yeah. There we go. Accounted equal. Yeah. There we go. Thank you very much for that question, Todd. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, a little bit more. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Here's one from Michael Rodriguez, directed specifically at Graham Ruthven. When will the Scot from Plymouth Argyle, Ryan Hardy, get a call up to the national team? He's had tremendous form over the last two years and Argyle is on the brink of promotion due to his goal scoring. Is he simply not good enough or is he being snubbed? So Ryan Hardy played at youth levels for Scotland. Uh, Plymouth Argyle obviously looking pretty good. Promotion to the championship looking reasonably likely. And Hardy leading the goal charge for them, Graham. Yeah, and there's been a little bit of chat chat about Ryan Hardy. um, But I think it is quite speculative at this moment simply because... He is playing in English League One. And, and right now, the fact of the matter is we don't have to go that low to, to find players. Um, we, we used to have to go that low if you're going back a few years. But right now, the squad's a pretty good place. Uh, that situation could change if Plymouth get promoted to the Championship. There is a spot up for grabs in the number nine pool because Che Adams and Lyndon Dykes have the first two places nailed down. And then that third spot sort of rotates between a few options. Um, one of those options being Jacob Brown at Stoke City in the Championship. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that if Hardy and Plymouth Argyle get up to the championship and he continues this goal-scoring uh, form, then he kind of forces his way in. But not right now, I would say. And also what's against Hardy is that Steve Clark likes to have different profiles of strikers. So Che Adams is an all-round sort of facilitator, facilitator, brings others into the game. Lyndon Dykes is a target man. Uh, Jacob Brown offers pace in behind so you kind of need to prove you can offer something different and while I I watched quite a bit of Ryan Hardy when he was at Rangers when they were in the lower leagues he was at Wraith Rovers as well I believe I seem to remember watching him he might have played Sterling Albion a couple times can't quite remember he's got talent he's a decent finisher but his career has kind of been a bit of a slow burn he must be I don't have uh, his profile in front of me but he must be getting on like late 20s now mid to late 20s now and um, so his career has been a bit of a slow burn so i can understand why he hasn't really been on the radar that much all right fair enough that's interesting about picking from the lower leagues i mean england are pretty soon gonna have to start picking from the lower leagues but don't tell jordan pickford it'll upset him <laughs> i mean gareth southgate i saw his quotes about that that he's gonna have to start picking from the lower leagues come on give me a break like england have one of the deepest talent pools in all of international football right now he cannot complain at this moment in time <laughs> is anyone shocked that that wasn't like that didn't end up being a shot at scotland and graham i was fully convinced that that was going to be but he'll never have to draw from somewhere horrific like right. Scotland. Ryan is That's still. That's what I thought we were going to do. Taylor Ryan is still on his aquarium high, so yeah, at the moment he's in his course. happy place uh, and yeah, doesn't have time to think of those insults. That's exactly right. I was thinking about those uh, those rays swimming in the pool in uh, I don't know Chicago's. Chicago's got a great aquarium, by the way, right oh, on the right you. on the uh, on the on the what do you call it? Large body. Is this why you there. don't? Is this why you don't like Rome? Does Rome have a bad aquarium? Rome doesn't have an aquarium, Graham. There we go. We found out the reason. This is it. <laughs> it has a zoo and no aquarium, and they call this civilization. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> honestly uh thank you very much michael for that question let's move on to diego lara if this premier league season was based on kits who would win who'd get top four and who would be relegated all right kit time i'm gonna kick off graham with some relegation nominations for me i don't know why i go negative first but i have done bournemouth i think relegated IRL and in Kitland as well. The zigzag stripes, the light purple away kits. No, they're going down. That was my top in my top four. So we are starting on very different pages here. I I would say it is is, uh, a pretty poor season for kits in the Premier League this year. It's not not a vintage year at all. So I did kind of struggle to pick a top four. So it's not that I think the Bournemouth one is 
a, a standout, outstanding kit. But yeah, I I like the Bournemouth one. Yeah, with with that in mind, Graham, I feel like my relegated teams. It's sort of it's a bad year for the Premier League in that way. It's sort of like lots of teams could be in the relegation zone because none of them are particularly stand out. A lot of my viewing of the kits was left with me saying like, yeah, that's okay. Like n- n- none of them are, yeah. maybe a few of them are atrocious and that's where I have my relegated teams. But for the most part, I have a lot of mid tables like Spurs who I like their home shirt and then I think their away one is atrocious. Same for Liverpool a little bit. So very good and very bad averages out to mid table for me. I think there is one standout terrible kit and or certainly shirt in the Premier League this season. And Taylor, you're not going to like it's where, Manchester United because oh, I, I, I know, I know, yeah, yep. it's that one. Man- Manchester United home is a bad, bad shirt this yeah. year. There's just way too much going on. It just doesn't work. Oh yeah, it's definitely a camel. It's it's a horse designed by committee. Uh, <laughs> I, I had them. I had them getting getting relegated for sure. Uh, they get a few points for having a, a collar on the home shirt. I love a Manchester United shirt with a collar, but the it's patterns on the collar are ridiculous the badge lining as well i don't know why they did a crest on top of the badge but then they made the filler the same color as the shirt a lot of questionable decisions with that one there's like pinstripes on it as well there's there's the the pattern on the collar there's sort of like pinstripes embossed into the pattern then there's the crest within the crest there camel is the perfect way to describe it i agree no I, i had them bottom i have manchester united bottom for for relegation in shirts yeah yeah, I agree. The the black shoulder stripes with the white collar with too much detail on it. Yeah, yeah, it's not doing it for me. Joe, what's doing yep. it for you in this uh, in this Premier League uh, kit league? Okay, so for me, the the pretty clear top of the league, which also aligns with how things have been going this season, is Arsenal. I really like Arsenal's combination. The home like Nodding. red shirt, it's classic, but the white collar I really like as well. I'm a sucker for a jersey with a collar. I really like it. Uh, so I'm a fan of the home kit. And then the black and gold away kit is is nice. It's really, really nice. It looks cool. I, I'm not as big a fan of the third kit, the, the light pink, but a lot of these third kits are kind of out there. So in general, I really like that one. Man City, I thought, isn't bad either. Arsenal is the only one that I'm actually passionate about. The rest, I think, are kind of mediocre. Man City, the, the blue with white and red trim is growing on me. And the black and red diagonal stripes on the away kit are, are nice as well. So I like those. A couple ones that I, I don't enjoy Manchester United in my relegation zone. Leeds United? Did anybody have Leeds close to the bottom? Their their white home kit is boring. I know it's traditional, but it's it's boring. And the neon yellow and blue tie-dye, I don't I don't even have words to describe that. Yeah. Weston McKinney is the only person I've seen that even look kind of sort of good on. And if that's the bar, the bar's too high, folks. It just it's just bad. <laughs> Joe, that's a really good way of explaining the Leeds home shirt, because I struggled with that as well, that historically they're wearing all white, but you can have an all white kit that still elevates and looks right. sharp versus an all white kit that looks like, oh, you you just had to do an all white shirt, so you went with that. It It is pretty basic. I actually like the tie-dye one uh, a, a bit more, uh, and sort of when we come to different colors being thrown in, I like West Ham a lot. I like the home yep. one. It's a throwback to them Me winning too. promotion. I like the graffiti shoulders, but then the black away, it has the kind of geometric bright trim on the sleeves. I think that's a pretty interesting one. They were in my top four. So was City. So were Villa, who I think are traditional but clean and not boring. So I had Arsenal, Villa, City, and West Ham as my top four. That's nice. I'm going to throw a few other names out there. I'm going to throw shade on Leicester. Um, They've got the gold Adidas and Crest. They've got the collar with a V-neck on it. 
Uh, the sponsor is FBS Trade Online. It's just Helvetica. They've not even tried at all with that logo. So <laughs> that's terrible. It's massive as well. The sleeve sponsor's massive. So that, that one's not doing anything for me. Graham, I don't know if, I'm, if this is controversial, but I really like Newcastle's kits, all three of them. The Castor ones. The home shirt has got yeah. the nice round neck, which is what you expect from Newcastle. The stripes are the correct thickness, which they haven't been necessarily in seasons gone past. And the second and third kits, it's this really nice blue and yellow kit they got as their away kit. And then we're not allowed to like it, but the Saudi Arabia. Okay, yeah. So that's the thing about that kit. Obviously, there are other connotations with that kit. But if it is possible, and I'm not sure that it is, but if it is possible to separate the kit from those connotations, that is a good kit. It aesthetically looks good. And I agree with Newcastle having the stripes um, the same width and the same number of them rather than having like three they've had in recent seasons, which hasn't worked at all for Newcastle United. The only issue with their kits is I believe a lot of their fans have had issues with like production quality issues. So they will they will buy one of those shirts from Castor, who are a new brand, a new kid in the block, and I don't think they've quite ramped up their production facilities yet. And so you will see cases of the badge being upside down. And I think Wolves have actually had similar things. They had a match, they played a real-life Premier League match with the badge, the Wolves badge, upside down on their shirt because Castor are still getting used to uh, being a Premier League kit supplier. Or it's just a cry for help. When you fly the flag upside down, it's a sign of crisis. <laughs> so maybe if you fly the badge upside down, it's a sign that things aren't okay yeah. behind the scenes. That was towards the end of Bruno Lage's tenure as manager, yep. and that was the player sending a message, <laughs> SOS. Uh, true, true, true kit story, by the way. I went to the first ever game at Pride Park, Derby's uh, uh, stadium in 1997-98 I'm going to say uh, so obviously Wimbledon were playing there it was near the start of the season and the kid, you're a Wimbledon fan? yeah I've not mentioned it I like oh, aquariums no. on Wimbledon um, <laughs> the kid only just come out come out sorry and the, it transpired that the team hadn't travelled with enough kits for the substitutes so a player came oh, on they yes. didn't have a kit so rather than borrowing one from another player they came to the away supporters and said, has anyone got the replica and we could borrow it? So, Oh, they went to the fans. Yeah, yeah. so our fullback, Alan Kimball, came, came, came over and wore a replica shirt with no number on it. And we got a fine for it, apparently, because it was a Premier League game. And he was wearing a replica shirt. I would shirt. say deserved, to be honest. It feels <laughs> like that negligence should, should be punished. But I like yeah. to think that the players were having to find fans with their, their name on the back of shirts. Yeah. And so like the right backs and the centre backs were being dealt a blow to their self-esteem when they couldn't find one with their name on the back. Yeah, there you go. I still remember how jarring it was watching a professional soccer player on the field with no name or number on the back when everyone else had one. It was quite... I thought you were going to say that Derby gave you gave you their away kits, which mm. I have seen before. I can't off the top of my head. I can't think where I've seen that, but I have seen that before, where the away team wears the home team's away kits. That's happened. For a match. We've had referees wear like a training drill top for for a team, haven't they? When that's clashed, I think we've seen that mm. once or twice before as well. Uh, one more team. Have we mentioned Crystal Palace? Yeah, so they're top of my list. I haven't yeah, actually said my top four yet, but the Crystal Palace are top of my list for home and away. They're kind of oh, Taylor's not a fan. Taylor's not a fan. Yeah, I at wasn't all. either. Did you not say? Did you not say you like the West Ham one with the graffiti on the shoulder? Is it not a similar sort of Cause vibe? Because it's, cause to it's the an Crystal accent. It's not the entire focal point of the jersey that looks very much like ah uh, someone's toddler designed a shirt. Here's some squiggles. No, Put it on. the Crystal Palace. <laughs> the Crystal Palace one is good, and I like the symmetry of the home and away one. It's basically just inverted. Um, which sometimes I'm not a massive fan of that when the away kit is the same as the home kit, but for some reason it works with this one. Um, I also have to mention Everton because they're Hummel and all Hummel kits are nice and i like the little detail of 
through, uh, embossed throughout the shirt is the Everton Tower. So if you look at their badge, the, the, the tower is in the Everton badge, and they've taken the tower, the outline of the tower, and they've kind of embossed it as a pattern throughout the shirt, which is very nice. Well, and they're trying to get rid of that in there, Creston, a year or two ago anyway. They tried to redesign it, and then the, the fans said no, and they went, okay, sorry. Yeah, they did try to redesign their crest, but I think they wanted to, the crest to only be the tower, oh, okay. I think, was the crest. <laughs> Does anyone else have issue with Nottingham Forest? Like, I yeah. know they don't have the They're shirt awful. sponsor, really but they awful. look fully like a team that weren't licensed and were just put yeah. into the Premier League this season. And then, evil Forest. And then yeah. their away one looks like they stole it from, yes, exactly. It Brazil. looks like they stole yeah. it from St. Vincent. No, oh, see, that's... I would say, like, they, they wanted Brazil, but Brazil's was too <laughs> yeah. expensive. So St. Vincent was on clearance, and they were like, yeah, we'll take that. Like, yeah. I, I don't love the the two color combinations yeah. uh I, I would like to like nottingham forest more because they don't have the shirt sponsor but it just looks sort of knockoff to me the the, the red and taylor just looks like you would go and buy it at ross like it really it, does so plain like you it could pick really it up for 12 does. bucks 12.99 yes. you, you do it's not want to great. walk around target wearing that shirt because you get a lot of people asking right. where stuff is exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh one other team we haven't mentioned of course sc richmond uh graham i like the orange mm. away kit they wore at chelsea what do you think about the home kit? <laughs> yeah, I actually own AFC Richmond merchandise. I wore a, a, a an AFC Richmond hoodie to my last Sterling Albion match, mm-hmm. so I like to believe it's given me luck. Yeah, believe. I bought the orange shirt. I did. I'm not did gonna, you? Yeah, I did. I like it. That's nice. Yeah, very good. Very good. All right. Uh, I think that just about covers our kit uh, thoughts. Thank you very much, Diego, for that question. And thank you for everybody who has submitted a question for this here. Listen to questions. We appreciate you all. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you'd like to contribute. But in the meantime, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much, sir. Um, I like Riff Raff 2 a little bit. Not as much as John Mayer, though. I appreciate that. I like whale sharks. So there you go. Who doesn't? Graham Rudson, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Joseph Lowery. Pleasure as always, my good man. Right back at you, Ryan. And listener, thank you again for joining us on this journey. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.